How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. <laughs> and I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sci Show Podcast, episode 175. <laughs> Should I leave that in? <laughs> I didn't know how to react to that one. No, the audience doesn't even want to know what sounds we're making before you introduce our lovely audience today. How are you, audience? I always ask Zeke how he is, but I never ask the... Well, to be fair, you ask. You say, how is it going, guys? Yes. So, to be fair, you actually ask the audience do. every week. Yeah, so. I do ask, how's it going, guys? Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I wish, I assume the audience goes, I'm really good, Zeke, how are you? And then we keep... And you on. never answer them. No, I just ignore them. And I'm like, now it's time to listen to me for the next two hours. Exactly. Oh, there's always something to rant about, I guess. How are you doing, Jake? I'm good. I'm good, thank you. You see, because I don't ask the audience, they don't ask me, so you have to ask me. That's exactly... It's the triangle of asking how everyone's doing. <laughs> exactly. You, me, and the rest of the world. Yes. I like it. I like it. It's funny because I hit record and I was like, ooh, I really hope we're good, Zeke, because I have in my book, like one of those sort of portable drives that the USB and goes in, into my tower and it's four terabytes. It's for all of my active mm. projects, which to be fair, in the last year hasn't really been that many. But alas, all of the these podcasts, of course, go into that. All the archive recordings and the, the editing project files and everything. Everything goes through the hard drive. And I noticed the other day, and the number's even lower now, I had less than 20 gigs left on my 4 terabyte drive. And I'm, it's getting to the point where I'm like, is this podcast going to cover the, <laughs> the 20 gigabytes? That's pretty crazy. Cause, I know, because it's at least a few gigs per episode. Just because the audio files are pretty, yeah, pretty big. The archives, yeah. Eventually, we'll lock them all away and <laughs> put them on an archive drive yeah. somewhere, like like Indiana Jones. Yeah, and it'll be one of those things that in the the new Fallout world, it'll be the thing that plays over the. Uh... <laughs> it's the new bottle cap currency. Is yeah. is the hard drives with Cinema Sideshow podcast episodes on them? Yeah, there's only like 175 that. so far. So, yeah. Well, I was thinking it'd be more like the stuff that's played over the radio. But, oh know, right, I see. I see. On the Pip Boys, it's not the Wanderer. But it's like they're all like so into it. They're like, "What are they going to talk about next?" <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're so into. I want at least one person listening right now to just like eagerly wait. What are they going to talk about next week? I'm so excited. I, you know what? I promise you this, Zeke. Yes. Before we finish our discussion of Top Gun, which is of course the thing we're doing this week, mm-hmm. I will tease a correlation, a connection between the ending of Top Gun, and the ending of next week's film of the week. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that when we do. Very spicy. Mm. Before then, Jake, do yes. you have a fun trivia fact for me? I do. I do. So, you know, during the production of Top Gun, of course we're looking at the mid-'80s for our you know countdown for the decades, mm-hmm. of course during the 1980s. Uh, jet fuel was actually pretty cheap at the time, and, and I, I like to talk about fuel because obviously fuel is... <laughs> very expensive nowadays but at this point we're talking about a dollar per gallon for jet fuel however paramount still paid up to ten thousand dollars an hour every time they went up to film in an f-14 so you know the the flying budget on this one was um i guess not too much of a surprise pretty big mm, to 1. say 8 the million least. to the pentagon to be specific wow oh for like permissions yeah to use it that's crazy well, is that is that your fun fact, Zeke? Did you just no, spoil it? I'm going to go with this Ooh. one because it's a bit more. It's a bit fun. Uh, okay. The real Top Gun school imposes a five dollar fine to any staff member that quotes oh, the film. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, 
which you would imagine, yeah, that's that's that is quite funny. Yeah. Um, I think Community did a similar sort of sense of humor in one of its episodes where they were talking about ghosts, where if anyone uh. did the reenacted the ghost spooning scene on the oh. on the pottery wheels, <laughs> uh, it was actually a very funny. Um, uh, funny scene. Yeah. Um, a couple oh, of other really nifty that. facts, but I'm sure we'll talk about it in the second half of the show, sort of the authenticity effects of mm, this film. Of course. But Zeke, I have a question before you. Yeah. The poster behind you, 1,100 films to watch, at least once in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Is Top Gun on that poster? I'm actually going to say no. No? Okay. Interesting. I might regret this. Well, to be fair, it actually isn't on the poster. Yeah. I was shocked by that. I could have sworn it was on the poster. Well, regardless, it's not on the poster, Z. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of films, 1,100 films. Top Gun, not on the list. But would it be on your list of 1,100 films to watch before you die? No. No. Interesting. The, I I think the reason I, I wouldn't is... Because there are other films I could fit into the sort of hokey 80s slot. Okay. I think. Okay. That I'd prefer. <laughs> the hokey, fun, 80s, quirky, over-the-top movie. Okay, um, yeah. I mean, this this film certainly fits that criteria. Um, yeah. And I, I think for similar reasons, I would put it on my list, even though that... I there, You're right, there are plenty of films from the 80s that sort of fit that mold that um, maybe are more deserving to be on the list, but it is a big list, and I think... I mean, Top Gun does a lot of interesting things from a filmmaking standpoint that yeah. is worth acknowledging, I think. from I mean, that's just that's just me. But it is what it is. It is raining heavy outside, Zeke. Yeah. Well, at least one good thing about the rain is it's pretty easy to noise reduce. That is true. Quite easily. I don't like noise reducing our lovely voices, though. No. I want, I want everyone to hear them in, in their great almighty fashion. We've had shocking weather. Oh, it's shocking. Week. Shocking. Um, and... Causing the Freo Dockers to lose. I was going to say, two weeks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not, not the greatest week, last couple of weeks. I know. Them lose. Apparently, they're like paper in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, yeah, they, they give you paper cuts, but when it's raining, it's, uh, it's all downhill. But hey, to quote uh, the last Scott we discussed on the show's mm. film, yep. um, my tears did get lost in the rain on that, the weekend. That is true. So... That is true. That's one benefit of Freya losing in the rain. So <laughs> we'll, we'll take what we can. Uh, now, Zeke, other than the footy, what have you been watching in the last week? I'm going to have to check this. Um, I'll start with a tangent. I'll go straight into the shows or series that I've been covering. I've actually been covering... I've been sticking with uh, Apple TV. Okay, no, fair enough. You know what? I'm actually... I'll give full credit. So I started watching one show and I finished the first season of another show. So I'll touch on um, both of them now. So I have completed the first season and started the second season of Mythic Quest. Mythic Quest. Which is a... Which you, I'm surprised... Like, honestly, not that you have Apple TV now, but when sure. you did, I'm surprised you didn't watch this because this is kind okay. of kind of fun in your jam. It's sort Ooh. of a comedy that situates itself inside a video game company. Um, and I might have heard of it, actually. Um, and they're trying to imitate a World of Warcraft-esque, yeah, like a fantasy-based MMO. Okay. And... Honestly, look, the cast is is sort of a uh, you know it stars stars from other really profound comedies. One community, Danny Pudi's in this mm. and plays kind of an evil Arbed corporate character, which 
he's just so good with comedic timing and like he's it's a fascinating like how well written he is it also stars um one of the eps on it's charlie day who was mm. um well known for always sunny and it definitely has an always sunny in philadelphia um essence to the show i'd say it's a honestly a marriage of community meets always sunny and okay it, it's actually really the pre- but the premise that doesn't surprise me too much yeah it's got like that sort of yeah like like that closed circuit um business running side that um always sunny definitely has more of but also has like the ensemble size and um diversity in both age and, and race that would be more warranted to community mm-hmm. i'd say um like there's an old man character who's pretty much just chevy chase but obviously not <laughs> chevy chase <laughs> Um, I really enjoyed it. the The finale was really good for the first season. I was like, "Wow, okay, okay I'm into the second season." Um, it's cool. It's nice to kind of. I'm still not a big fan. I'm not sold on this eleven episode sitcom formula, which it follows that. Which, right, you're saying they're all getting really short uh, nowadays. It's just annoying. Like, right. I get it. They've got like a lot of different projects going on, and that's sort of the idea is that they can come on, do this really quickly, and they're in this show, but. Yeah, that was the that sense I got with BoJack was a lot of its cast they could do it real quick every year. Yeah, they could squeeze it in with their schedules. That was yeah, same concern. Maybe that's how you get bigger people to come onto these exactly. Uh, yeah, projects, but it it annoys me. I think because we don't get enough time to grow with the characters and grow the affection or affinity we feel in something like um, Community Always Sunny that were given twenty episodes after their. Like, admittedly, I always give first seasons, it's okay to have 11 or 12 episodes. It's a first season, it's a pilot season. But I can already see, it's like, that's not what they're doing. They're doing serialized, where it's 10, 12 episodes every season for these these streaming show originals. And it just annoys me, I think, because it's sort of like, well, you know, this is kind of why you take the gamble with... And it's not even like these, these... Not to be brash on these actors but they're not a-list actors so why aren't we trying to push this out to 20 episodes right but like, on the flip side it might be because of their status i mean like charlie day is pretty popular but but no, he's not in it but he's ep oh i see i see but like to, gonna, but to yeah. that point it's like i can see them not wanting to put too much money into a first season and producing 30 episodes without the guaranteed return so I think there's a bit of a, a give and take in that regard. So we'll see if season t- two is like 30 episodes long. But Rob McKellany, who is the guy from Always Sunny, that's right. It. But he's very funny. But it's like the the season, yeah. So season two only has, to this point, only has oh it has no as of last year it has nine episodes. Okay. So it, I I just think it's sort of like one of those things where it's like okay, like. It's harder. It's harder to get attached because they have to rush through things quicker. So arcs have mm. to move quicker. There's not as much subtle pepper, pepper crumb, like sorry, breadcrumbs through, right. through the season. It makes you build there. up <laughs> seasonal arcs. And I just, to me, it's like, yeah, it's it's a very, it, it's sort of a problem. It's starting to even in the good shows, you're not getting as much. And it's like Ted Lasso, like for example, only had ten episodes in the first season. Only had mm. ten second season, but in its second season. It took more time to focus on developing character arcs and actually extended episodes. A lot of the episodes became less 20-minute episodes and more mm. 30 to 40-minute episodes. Right, yeah. Because that is the one benefit of streaming platforms. They're not 
stuck in the 20 minute formula they yeah. can quite easily go longer if they want to go longer or shorter but and you have the other way where stranger things is going to have two and a half hour episodes in this new season which is just i think that's just kind of ludicrous to be honest yeah but at that why why don't you just split it up at that why don't point you split it up yeah but you're right they have that freedom which yeah. can go either way it could be good or bad for them yeah yeah well they've got a lot to explain in stranger things season four to be fair do they, do they really though? <laughs> I gotta watch three. It's been so long. We talked about three. We on talked the show. about three way, way ago. Yeah, I remember that. We we're still in your room <laughs> doing that show. <laughs> yes, we've, we've come so far. Oh, we've come so far. We went to one, one room to the next, and a studio in the middle. <laughs> um, the other show I started, and I'm now midway through the uh, second episode, is an yeah. is a drama miniseries called The Shrink Next Door. Oh, um, I've heard of this. This is um. Paul oh, Rudd and Will Ferrell. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, look, it was... I'm, I'm hooked enough to watch, because it's only eight episodes. So I'm in the midway through the second, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's about uh, a recently, like a, a low self-confidence individual in the 1980s who seeks um, help from this shrink, but he's... He's got ulterior motives, mm. you know, from a from a monetary point of view, and it it'll be interesting because I'm I'm sort of in the middle with it. I I think it's very predictable and sort of okay one note already, but we'll um, see. Yeah, you're pretty. It's pretty early. early. Yeah, um, you sort of see where it's going to go before it goes. But yes, yeah, like like I said earlier, it is early days. What about you, Jake? What else have you watched? Oh, I might be a little late, uh, early to segue to me because I've actually watched nothing at all this <laughs> this past week. Sorry, it, I can it, bail you out. Yes, please, because um, uh, th- there's a very good reason for it though, and I'll get into it a little later in the show. Hmm. I'm trying to work out how to use Letterbox on my tablet. <laughs> Do you want me to check your Letterbox for you? Because um, I know you watched The Lost City in this last yeah, week. Yeah, that I have that watched. One. I can I can say, here we go, I've got the diary up. you got the diary. Oh, cool. Um, you yeah, got working right. on the tablet, the old tablet. Yeah, so I'll start with The Lost City because it's the, the latest release from um, out of the ones I've watched. Right, um, gotcha. Obviously came out in the last month. Um Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, very pop- popcorn comedy is the easiest way to describe it. Right. Um, does think... the comedy hit? To be honest, in my opinion, it does. It's not too okay. juvenile. It's like, look, it's a PG thirteen pushing M comedy. Like it's right. It it honestly, I I said it's almost like a spiritual sequel to something like The Proposal with Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock. Um, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Well, about the same. It's about as much comedy. Um, as this does, right. um, I think Channing Tatum is well cast. He's playing he's playing a dumb big oaf guy. I mean, he's mm. good at playing that character. We've seen it; it works. Daniel Radcliffe's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, I've heard he's um, pretty good in it. He's um, a fun villain. Yeah, I think it's for the most part it's fine. Like it's a perfectly if you ended up if you want to go on a nice date night, have a, which is what it was, nice date night, laugh and not think too much. It's a tight hundred too, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. Okay, that's nice. Um, it's not four and a half hours long. <laughs> it's got funnier moments than others. Some moments don't hit. Some hit really well. I, I think, or if it, you know, it's not, I think it's perfectly adequate 
stream at home if you've got not like you want to watch something easy and consume right if you're stuck at home isolating for a week it's a perfect thing to put on your your new tv yeah and i wouldn't be too annoyed by it because if you you know if you've got like you can zone out watching it mm. quite easily so i find these sort of films inoffensive because right it's like there's no stake in it like you're never gonna be like wow that was so funny i want to watch that again I have no intention of watching that film again anytime soon. Mm. But, you, but but you don't feel like you wasted your time watching it. No, no I had a yeah. really nice. Trip it's what to we can all hope for in life, is it? <laughs> we don't just waste our lives. Yeah, over like the, over the stuff that's a little bit more um, uh, critical to talk about, I guess. Okay. Um, I watched a documentary also on Apple TV. Man, I've just become an Apple TV ambassador. I know. Um, we were complaining about it weeks ago. <laughs> now you've turned a tide on it. I like it. Um, <laughs> who are you, Charlie Brown? Now, I don't know about you, Jake, but I'm I am a big fan. You are a gigantic fan of Charlie Brown. Yeah, Peanuts. And this is basically just a biographical documentary on Charles M. Schultz, the guy who designed it, um, mm. created it. And so it talks about the commentary and, and stuff like socio-cultural like deconstruction of someone's work basically an artist's work over, over over a span of life and but what i liked about it is you obviously we've talked about this problem with biographical documentaries they can lack substance they become too reliant on archival footage or interviews piece to camera from people that are often dead so <laughs> um so they're relying on sort of this third party recounting Sorry, not to um oh god yeah. and what i liked about this it's 40 54 minutes so it doesn't overstay its welcome once again okay it's pretty short okay uh is they sort of tell it i love the two things i really liked about it one they use like comic panels to like transition between okay. so they integrate the medium into it they actually bring up panels that he did he did back in the day relevant right. to whatever point in the narrative they were trying to cover okay which was really cool because you're sort of seeing how art like what they're talking about interpreted in the moment that they're talking about Mm. on top of that they've almost got like this integrated charlie brown special in the documentary of charlie brown writing a paper about what it means to be him Mm. meta narrative sort of thing going on yeah like a meta narrative going on and i actually really appreciated that because it's like you're adding that little bit of artistry to it and how inherently all of these characters were this uh, was were this author this, mm. this this comic book artist and i think that there's a lot to like about that sort of stuff because it, it just diversifies it a little bit like makes it a little bit more different than just being like, oh he's born here these are some of his comics oh he did some yeah cool as like, like opposed to like a wikipedia article there's actually yeah more to the visual storytelling that's going on i like that according to letterbox very similar consensus yeah nice. so um the other boy this is now not working. I, can, I can help you out here. Okay, I, cool. I got the screen yeah. grab. We can talk about. I don't think you talked about this last week. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Did no, you, really not. I don't. I don't know. I think I did. Oh, well, you saw it on the eighth. That was a while ago. Yeah, Ma- oh, it, you did. You the, did. I do remember that. The big one, other Excuse than me. Uh, film of the week, is Slapshot, the nineteen seventy six film by George Roy Hill. Um, oh, okay. Here we go. Is the third of his Paul Newman films. You know, we've obviously, and it's going to come up because it's relevant to the next poll that's going out. Yeah. Um, Keep your eyes open, folks. So I, I probably will eventually integrate it into a conversation if 
that one wins in the poll. I'm not going to lie. When I saw Slapshot, I thought it was another AFL footy movie. That <laughs> that <laughs> That's a hockey caught. movie. Oh, okay. It's an ice hockey movie. Yeah. Um, so obviously, as I said, George Roy Hill, who um, even today I rewatched The Sting because yeah, it was very yeah. quiet at work. And, uh, you know, obviously from, like we said, The Sting from like episode 70 something or... A while ago, yeah. Um, that was actually our first countdown for the decades. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And Butch Cassidy's Sundance Kid was his previous film. They were both obviously with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. This one's just with Paul Newman. This is kind of hectic because um, this is an MA film and okay. um, has a lot of vulgar language in it. And naughty, that's, naughty. Look, that not going to lie, That's it, it's actually very entertaining, but it's very complete and utterly tonally opposite to the other two films. Because this thing is quite fun, quite it's cheeky. fun, and it's not inappropriate. There's yeah. no vulgarity, really, in it. Yeah, um, it's very clean, surprisingly clean for a film about about tricky thieves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this one's sort of about a dying, uh, a dying sort of nowhere town, um, and a minor league hockey team's obviously facing its sale, like, because attendance is down and they sort of change their ways from playing sort of finesse beautiful hockey to hackham and basham hockey right (laughs) and they employ these three brothers who are sort of like very hick brothers that from a what yeah like a an interesting family and i see they're obviously just all about the brutality side and it obviously brings people in and there's the whole feigning of of them um sort of saving the club but it's all for nothing and i think it's an interest it's an interesting film even to tie it with the one of the week because it sort of discusses masculinity of a, a product of the times masculinity mm. even then having quite interesting ideas even you would argue progressive ideas about sexuality and sort of um obviously with the dated ling- lingo like this film is can be tough to watch if you're not you've kind of forgotten how jarring some lingo was oh, okay. from right. the 70s. Because when I say vulgarity, obviously, I mean, it's contextual vulgarity. So it's like, it's 1977 vulgarity. Sure, so yeah. You, you've always got to take that into consideration with films. I mean, to be honest, you even watched films in the 90s and their use of vulgarity is quite dated now. Yeah, so you're yeah. now asking to watch a film that's nearly 50 years old. So well, even, even us talking about like Bill and Ted, was that last year? Or was that, that was yeah. two years ago? Yeah, 2020. Mm-hmm. Wow, crazy. But even talking about the first two, and just like the the use of a very specific word in the first two that they very clearly drew attention to because that you know it gets one pop per film. So it's almost like oh, this is like a a catchphrase. <laughs> Bill and Ted are really uh, a very problematic catchphrase, so to speak. That they very clearly avoided in the third film. But it's part of that context. And and what I like about what Disney Plus does at times. I actually had this conversation recently is that for films that do have, you know, language or themes or, you know, a bad stereotype representation, as opposed to just censoring mm. them, they put the little message at the front and the little write-up of, like, this is a piece of culture from its time and that you don't necessarily need to appreciate it, but I think it's good to acknowledge it. And I like that. I, f- I think films should be viewed from that lens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to give credit to the River Jordan for her... Uh, first line from her review, Paul Newman's personal favourite of his own movies, this film is. Mm, okay, Which That's is cool. quite interesting. 
uh, is one where he gets to say the P word a dozen times and the C word half a dozen more. Um, I think that's quite hilarious because that sort of sums up exactly what I'm talking the about River Jordan. Here. Um, I like how much fun this film has and I like I do like how vulgar it is in parts in in the sense of its brutality and it's honestly its use of humor is really effective. Okay. It doesn't have this probably the same stylism as the two previous Newman films that are just like so slick and clean and yeah. not only in their narratives but in I reckon in in their production design flair and their contextual sort of flow and and like storybook-esque when we were talking mm, about the sting yeah this one's definitely a bit more gritty um okay and it works in its benefit but it's not the film i expected to get into when i saw like the poster and stuff and i yep. ended up enjoying it quite immensely tough film to find though i had to rent it off I youtube was, yeah i was gonna say it says here you can rent it off youtube i was gonna ask if you did that or dvd but 4.99 on youtube not, worth it not terrible not terrible worth it. i would probably buy this if i could find it somewhere yeah, and um, to the collection. Yeah, because I I think off the air last week I was saying how underrated George Roy Hill was as a director. Yeah, um, got to bring him up some more. So I like it. There we go, and that's pretty much all I've watched other than the film of the week. Sweet, yeah. So Jake, you want to give us run on the excuse train? As yeah, to why here's we... the excuse train. Choo choo, everyone, let's go. <laughs> well, for, it's funny because like just with my schedule lately, it's usually lined up that Sunday ends up being sort of my day where I can catch up on a couple of things. And yeah. I was going to watch some more films, obviously from Tony Scott, our director's corner, director of the week, so to speak. And I wanted to watch films like Man on Fire, which I've owned that on DVD for 10 years. For some reason, it came with my copy of Max Payne 3 on, on the PS3. Okay. <laughs> really strange, yeah. And, and, and of course, and my boss actually worked on a bunch of Tony Scott films. So I really wanted to watch some of those as well, just so we can talk about them the next day. The one I have seen is Unstoppable, the train one he did. But I saw that in theaters when I was like, 12 or 13 so i remember absolutely nothing about it other than i actually liked it a lot um so that was gonna be sunday and then on sunday i get a little heads up of oh the raven comes out tonight <laughs> so for those who don't know and, and to be fair it's been a while very far spread out since we've over mentioned 100 this episodes. Film. over well over 100 episodes well it first probably would have got mentioned when we did whiplash um, when Stephen first guest starred in the show, and this was like pre-production, right before COVID happened, then of course pushed production to like September. Um, and for those who don't know, it's a, it's a Vikings short film, a film shot in WA, set in Scandinavia, which is obviously very ambitious and very tough. But I was happy to be on that set in September. So if you go back to September 2020, I don't know what episode. We, you know, I think we probably did do Bill and Ted around that point. Ironically, oh, and, and I'm thinking of ending things. I think those might have been the two episodes where I, where I talked about shooting the raven i did the mm. bts for it and then Stephen came back to do uh memories of murder with us well i think we talked about that film in a, in a more of a complete post-production fashion um and then the film premiered in april at backlot so that was last year and now as of us recording it is live on youtube it's finally publicly available for everyone to watch uh my behind the scenes video is also publicly available which that's what I ended up doing on my Sunday was sort of cleaning up the grade, cleaning up the, mm. the soundtrack. And I know Blake, who who co-wrote the film with Steven, he also shot it and composed the music. He had a few notes of like, hey, Jack, if you're going to get this up, maybe like look at these things. So I, I did that and I was very happy with the results. So the time that I spent to kind of clean it up. Uh, so yeah, go on YouTube and you can find The Raven. I should probably post it somewhere 
I'll probably do a post on my Instagram. Um, might be easier for the audience to find it. So where we do our polls, of course, Zeke. Yes. We'll do it there. And um, no, it's cool. It's finally like I can finally show people because it feels like it's been forever. It is very exciting. So yeah, and um, I'm very proud of the behind the scenes. Well, you should be. Yeah. You work hard. You developed quite a reputation over the last few years of being a behind-the-scenes guy. <laughs> I know. Now it's got to tear that reputation down. Well, you know, I joke because it's like sometimes I do BTS on films that they, they straight up just never ask me about it. Mm-hmm. So I would be on set shooting behind the scenes and then months later the film would release online and I didn't even get an email of like, hey, like how's it going with the BTS? And it just sort of falls out of existence. And in other, in other cases, the film hasn't even come out yet. But... To be honest, like doing this little clean up and touch up, and now it's mm. out there and it's all finalized and up on YouTube in 4K. I was really happy about that. I got my 4K exports. I was really proud of that. Now that it's like there and it's done, this whole idea of I like having had done the thing as opposed to doing that thing, I'm like, oh, I kind of want to get the other BTSs <laughs> all edited and polished up now. So maybe that's it, Zeke. Maybe my yeah. BTS reputation continues. Um, but yeah, go on YouTube, check it out. The Raven, the 2021 film directed by. Our good friend Stephen Clark, and of course on that same YouTube channel, making the Raven, the behind-the-scenes featurette. Very exciting. Well, <laughs> it's time for us to move into our film of the week, the latest in our countdown through the decade retrospective. We're moving to the 1980s. It's also a director's corner. Yes, it is. So, Jake, who's double, the director? Double whammy. And what are we watching? Of course, Zeke, we're talking about Tony Scott, and he's a very relevant this week movie. <laughs> 1986's. Top Gun. Lieutenant Pete Maverick Mitchell and his friend co-pilot Nick Goose Bradshaw being accepted into an elite training school for fighter pilots is a dream come true. But a tragedy, as well as personal demons, will threaten Pete's dream of becoming an ace pilot. Ace or goose? Ace. Oof. Iceman. <laughs> yes. All Lots the names. Hollywood. Yep, Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood, yeah, exactly. Wolfman. Manly man. <laughs> Man man. One of those wasn't real. All the call signs. I like it. I like it. Top Gun. Top have, Gun. Have, I don't think either of us have watched this film in full until now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and by uh, Tony Scott, our latest director, a year since we took on his brother's director's corner. He's probably yeah. more well-known brother, I'd say, but... Probably well-known or more well-known. Um, better, question rep- mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly, question mark. <laughs> I know people that, yeah, that think Tony's uh, the, the better brother. People who perhaps have met both. To be fair, if I had met Ridley Scott, I'd probably like him less and less the more I talk to him. 
typically I've seen him <laughs> I how get that inter- vibe. I've seen how he's interviewed and I don't like him that much to be honest. So <laughs> you just watch YouTube clips and you're like, ugh. Jeez. Yeah. He made House of Gucci to be fair, so you know. That that's mean. That is mean. He's made some great oh. films. But of course we're talking about Tony. Yes. We shouldn't we shouldn't DV off into his brother this quickly into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Tony. No, oh, do well. credit um Rest in peace, Tony. Yes. Goodness. Yes. He he does have some pretty uh pretty strong films in his in his resume. You know, Man yeah. on Fire is arguably probably his critically best film. Sure, um, yeah. I'm really upset I didn't end up watching it yesterday. Uh obviously you mentioned Unstoppable. Yep. Um he's got actually quite a few um very large ones. I know Deja Vu is probably a big one that he worked on. Days of a lot Thunder. of stuff with Denzel. Which is interesting. Well, actually, a lot of stuff with Denzel, a lot of stuff with Will Smith, and a lot of stuff with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Depending on which era, almost. They were almost in <laughs> separate eras. Um, which, you know, is not uncommon for directors to work with consistent uh, people. But, sure. Uh, yeah, overall, very uh, intriguing. Just looking through the repertoire of different... Uh, different actors he's worked with over well, time well the thing that really stood out to me just just purely looking at the resume right off the bat and if you do want to bring it back to comparing it to his brother um very different sort of taste in filmmaking or in terms of the genres like it kind of i feel like tony scott reminds me a bit of a michael mann in terms of lots of films very contemporary i don't want to say like manly men films but definitely like your dad will enjoy this action flick vibe (laughs) (laughs) actually so true that's kind of the vibe i get which is so different from ridley of course he does sci-fi and roman epics and all of these lots of different types of genres and films but it's like if that if that's sort of where you you vibe with and you do it well then tony scott he makes great films i i mean to spoil our thoughts on top gun because we haven't we haven't really talked about it other than just I would include it on my list, you wouldn't include it in your list, but that they that we both consider it to fit into that sort of not cheesy, but just that that eighties. I think cheesy. Cheesy is yeah. not a negative word. No, 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 no. Um, I don't we, know if Top Gun's cheesy though. Oh, I think it is. I, you, you can definitely see it as that. I think it's blockbusterd. Like it's sure. the quintessential popcorn blockbuster. It's unashamedly. Uh, for, uh, for film it, your for dad's <laughs> <laughs> To be honest, I think that's the best way of describing it. He, Tony Scott's profile is very much aimed at the 20 to 40 male demographic. Right, right. Of men. And men, men, men. That's, men. Not, that's not a critique on him. I think that's, that's almost complimentary. In the, it's complimentary in the sense that he liked making a certain type of film. And to his credit, he was really good at making that type of film. Yeah. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about just some of the creativity, the raw creativity, though maybe the the the, the story itself might be a weaker element, but from mm. a camera point of view and a stylistic point of view, you couldn't do this type of action film better. Right, right. And given that this was 1986, that's baffling. Yeah, like, well, that's it. We're talking about like classic dogfights, and you got like your your Howard Hughes stuff really early on, where he's sort of now going off the what I've learned from the Scorsese biopics of him, but like him mastering the aerial dogfight stuff by like realizing unique clouds in the shot, so you can actually understand the speed of what's happening. Like you got that level of revolutionary, but then a, yeah, a film like Top Gun, with you know the way they would mount the Super Thirty Five cameras onto 
onto the onto the jets and on the planes and just the variety of different action shots that you're getting and you can tell through the editing that this film almost feels like it's sort of put together through through tape <laughs> tape mm. and glue because almost every second shot almost it has like a different level of iso uh, the lighting conditions are almost completely different from shot to shot but it's putting together a very i wouldn't say meticulously crafted but a very carefully and well shot section of action um motion and and photography mm. and you're right it comes together to really like this exciting f- filmmaking yeah and i think it's it's important to consider things like um you know it's how difficult but also how dangerous this yes. sort of process was you know one of their stunt pilots did die on production oh geez i didn't know that um <laughs> And you know, obviously, when we when we consider even the the gravitas, not to be too meta commentary on mm. someone's death, but even just the film story directly ties to how yes. dangerous yep. what they're doing is. And up until the point where we see that emotional weight, we don't really grasp how dangerous what they're doing because, quite simply, they're not they're not directly up until the last, like literally the last fifteen minutes of the film, they're not they're never in combat. Yeah, well, that I think actually the the rise in stakes and like the slow realization of how dangerous this is, I think is like masterfully done in yeah. Top Gun, because you're right. Up until the ending, it's it's school, it's a bunch of boys, and we'll get into the whole you know flying with the boys mentality. Well, it's boys to men. Yeah, well, exactly. But then the again, like the amount of danger they establish and slowly imbue with the characters and like the slow panic attacks and deaths that occur you're right they all happen during like the fun period of the film where they're just sort of training and practicing mm. and then when we get to the actual dogfight in the end you realize like oh my god and now it's just like a whole new level they step forward i think it's masterful how it's laid out from start to finish it's probably one of the films ugh, would i say it's biggest achievement yeah maybe um, i Ar- thought it was impressive show was the uh, pilot that passed away on uh, okay very sad yeah. Made a good film, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but it's important. It's one of those things that you really don't grasp, yeah, how dangerous this sort of situation is. And even from a production point of view, God, the amount of paperwork that would have had to have been done <laughs> in order to... Well, the amount of money that was exchanged just for permissions and... <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it is... I agree. I think that's probably one of its biggest strengths this film has is how, for the most part, yeah, the stakes are low in the sense that they're not what you would originally perceive when you think you're jumping into Top Gun, you think you're jumping into fighter pilots doing fighter things. But the danger actually comes from the fact that they're in a plane. And I think a lot of other, particularly action films, obviously forget that part Mm. because they think they need to be under constant fire. So by the time the the actual fight happens, the actual dogfight happens, we've already seen someone die. Uh, yeah. a, a crucial character of any other, but solely based off things that were beyond characters' control. Like it's technical malfunctions, yeah, essentially. And I think that that inherently is where you know this film's greatest strength is. It's like okay, we're actually we're really trying to more explore the um the danger this job has. And obviously, it's a, look, it's not as profound and looking into the psychology of the soldiers as much as something like Kubrick's full metal jacket sure. or even Jarhead, like where we're looking at infantrymen and the 
systematic abuse that they would suffer mm. not only in training but out on the battlefield and obviously those films are way more provocative and and focus on that stuff whereas this is mm. very much like i said it's a boys to men thing like it's so the toxic masculinity which wouldn't even be a phrase now but obviously comes with our 21st century viewing mm. is prolific even as two men watching the film well it's funny because it's like the reading I got from it, and the more the more as the film played out, the more it sort of reaffirmed that is this idea of yeah, you got like it, it's jocks in high school, you know, and you know they, you got the locker room stuff, and they're playing volleyball, and it's like you have those sort of very unashamed vis- uh, visuals of like oh like boys being boys, but well, then even like the way it's scopophilic though, isn't it? I mean, to just... to an extent, <laughs> we sort of used to scopophilia on from the other end of it to say it's not i mean it's a male <laughs> filmmaker where, where he's yeah. sort of he, yeah but i think there's a level of fun to it and i think there's a yeah. self-awareness amongst the men and we can we can get into all like the gay readings of this film which have been very popularized over since the 90s actually and there was a big thing where tarantino played a character i got i got to double check which film it was it was a film in the 90s where he goes on this big rant about how top gun is all about homosexuality and the rejection of heterosexuality which we'll get into all that because I didn't take it that far in my head watching. I was like, oh, boys being boys. Like, they're snickering as their female teacher is trying to, you know, no, but it, uh, keep I it think under control. That's not inherently wrong. I mean, but people say that about, like, even today with grown men in, in live sport. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's a similar energy, yeah. And as someone who played football up until, like, 18, it's like that energy is there. Yeah. Like, it's that. Over, almost overcorrection, and I think that's where the spectral nature of sexuality comes in. But um, I think that's more comedic than reality. Sure, yeah. I mean, like I said, they're having they're having fun with it. I mean, you could say a similar thing about the Dead Poet Society, like oh, you know, the boys in there, but but that they're much more sensitive characters. You know, a lot of the films about them reading poetry, while this one there is a sense of the competition of like, you know two guys trying to be the best the best the best pilots the best flyers and the I, best it, at everything it, it just goes so deep into that like it's fun it's so unashamedly like a boys silly. film a silly boys film yeah. yeah but i can't knock it for that because it's i still found it really really enjoyable like it's the plot is pretty beat for beat but i i don't care because yeah. that that's not we're not here to watch like this intricate story unfolding First off, it, it it's kind of like the whole Adam Sandler half his films are just like excuses to go on holidays. Jackass, they make films as excuses to make pranks. This isn't that different from like Tom Cruise wants to fly jets, and they made a movie well, I, so I was he could say fly one of his, jets. His behind the scenes thing was he yeah. didn't really want to do it. Then he flew in one of the jets. He went, no, I want to do this now. Like, yeah, I find this yeah. really cool. So it's so like you're very accurate with that one. And I mean, like apparently Tony Scott came up with the idea from the film from reading a magazine article. Right, yeah. And he said that the script was more a skeleton and they sort of just fleshed it out. As a bit go. more ab-libbing, yeah, that's, so, that sort of thing. Yeah. I, will, I will say, though, because you're right, it is based off that article, and I'll get the writers' names really quickly. They were um, oh, Buck and Imer and Simpson. They were sort of hired and Tony Scott was hired. They were all hired and they even went through a couple of other actors before they did screen test, um, obviously, Tom Cruise. So it, I'm not... I'm being a little, like... Um, funny about oh like ah oh, he just came in and wanted to fly a jet but it's like you're right there's still an element of truth to that and there's still an element of fun that that everyone's having while making this film 
Despite the fact that, yeah, there is that layering of danger that's slowly peppered throughout the plot. And I think, like I said, I, I don't think the script or the, the, the actual plot is anything to, to write home about, but the characterization, the way that, you know, Goose mm. and, and, and um, Cougar and the panic attack he has at the start and the rivalry he has with Iceman, I think those are all, like, really fun dynamics. You really care for a lot of these characters. Yeah, and I, I find it... That's that's yeah, it's, and it makes that final confrontation so high stakes. Mm. I think because to that point, it's the animosity and tension is always there. Yeah, literally to the point where they're under attack, mm. and even and then they see it through. Obviously, you know, Maverick comes through at the end, but it, yeah, it's one of those things that you know Val Kilmer's character of, of, of Iceman has. Some of the probably the, some of the stronger li- like definitely more prolific lines in the film, where he sort of talks about it's not about liking each other, it's about mm. being on the same page because people's lives are at stake. And even his scene where he's trying to apologize to well not apologize show yeah. condolence yeah. For, for Goose's death, and he's really doesn't like Maverick as a person, and he sort of it's like pulling teeth, but he does it. Yeah. You know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I was blanking on a highlight scene. So I might, I might just go ahead and use that, but his performance, Falcon's performance, I was like shocked. It's so good. Like he's so clearly not like, yeah, it's like pulling teeth, but he's, he's almost afraid because if he doesn't get the words out of his mouth fast enough, Maverick's going to punch him in the face. And like, it's such a subtle little thing of him, like being very careful what comes mm. out of his mouth and to say it fast enough that it's like he's not there to say to to hurt him in any way. He authentically feels bad about Goose. Yeah, I that he's so good in that scene. Yeah, it's it's definitely between him and Michael Ironsides' mm, mm. Um, performance, which are both really good. Obviously, playing the senior officer, the one who's sort of overseeing the training. Yep, yep. He has some very powerful scenes, and um, yeah, look, it's like I said, it's a like you you've pretty much hit the nail on it. It's a simple narrative couple of rivals you know it's going through but it's it's sort of just a fun movie to watch yeah and it sort of sums quintessentially it sums up the 80s you know we talked about back to the future <laughs> it really does it's <laughs> a couple, perfect 80s film to talk about yeah, and yeah. we and we talked about back to the future a, a mm. couple couple weeks ago and you know i've talked about the karate kid and, and stuff yep. like this these films that don't even need to like the the antagonist in this film is technically Val Kilmer, but it's like the enemy is honestly, they're basically just the empire. They're just these <laughs> nameless. They're, they're not Russian. Then I think they're alluded. They're Russian, but it's yeah, like, I think there was some treading on water about, I know there was like a Cuba thing that they, I think they removed or yeah. Yeah. They sort of tread water on that. They actively avoid it because it's not about who the menace is at the end. No, exactly. It's, and as and what the, as they do is they pepper through the film is there are a lot of these uh, conflicts and fights no one ever hears about, right? Yeah, and that's a big part of being like in this Top Gun program is is sort of the that they'll get shipped to places where they have to just resolve issues and and if they die they're sort of off the record that's it yeah, and this film does take death in its weight and weighted substance and allows you to get to know the ensemble, whether it's a few lines or not, because so when the death happens with goose, it's a big deal because he's actually the only one who dies. 
because Wolfman and Hollywood yeah, bail right. out at the yeah. end. They... Cougar still survives despite the panic attack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the only one who dies is Goose. So it's like there's there's not this. It's not this big final conflict where all of this cast is just. They, these ones with two, three lines, they just all die. Yeah. And you're left with just Maverick and Iceman. No, no. Everyone survives. But it's that's the reality of it. It's most of the time, most people do. And the fact is the only death of named characters comes from a training accident, a malfunction in a plane. Yeah, yeah. There is no villain in that situation. Yeah. And even then, you know, there's a bit of a self-guilt that, that Maverick has. But it's it's very quickly that they have the scene where he's sort of in that a bit of an informal hearing and they, they come to the conclusion that he was not at fault and that he, you know, resume his training or, you know, his status very quickly, even though he still feels that guilt. There's another thing I really want to bring up quickly before I forget, because there's, there's a bit of that saying of his dad, his dad's a bit of a legend and he sort of feels his need to have to live up to his dad. Did you think that that was more so just like self-inflicted? Because for me, a lot of the pressure just came from him putting the pressure onto himself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's sort of that's sort of pushed by the fact that we don't get a flashback or the opening scenes about like his dad saving the day. It's all like essentially off screen. Well, it's through that, like I said, through the boys, that boys to men character arc is also him finding humility and self responsibility and self accountability. Right. So the story about his dad. Is more an excuse to act out the way he acts out, and he sort of to rationalize right, his bad right. decisions. Whereas towards the end, he becomes an accountable, mature, responsible person, and I think that's sort of the journey he's under undertaking. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think that's why there's no point to the flashbacks. It's sort of like that's why you know when Ironside says to you know when Viper says to him, like, oh, well, there's you know your dad before he bought it saved three people. Like right. It's sort of like it's almost like one of these. It's a conditional conversation where it's like, and that's why he's so quick. Viper's so quick to push him. He's got to go straight back out to the air. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be straight back to fish, fish to the ocean, sort of thing, because that's going to be what fixes him over time. Yeah. Not, um, not mulling over it, not dwelling over it, not trying to explore it, and and the film's quick to pace that. Mm. Um, it's not that he's not met with adversity, but. But it doesn't want to get bogged down in it either, the actual film and the pace of it. But it, so. you know, the whole point of that whole exchange with, with Viper and, and Maverick is to highlight that they're in the army. Like this is Right. They're in a <laughs> they're in a life or death industry. Yeah. So um these things happen like, you know, he even says, you know, he says it with that sort of flat but it's that that's where that maturity comes because mm. he's dealt with loss and you know, obviously we obviously you know widowed a family and stuff and but it's like everyone tells i think it's one of those things where it's like you know when goose's wife comes and talks to maverick and it's mm. like look he was going to be doing this no matter what yeah exactly there's like, no regret there yeah it's sort of like they understand the weight of it and then you know you could argue things like um i always forget her character um, oh, Sally's. Oh, sorry, not Sally. What am I saying? Kelly McGillis's character. Yeah, I got Charlotte on my document, but I, I can't zoom in for some reason. That's <laughs> one of those things like, with McGillis, like McGillis's character, where it's yeah. like, oh, well, of course he falls for like the flying instructor, and that's really hokey and cheesy, and sort of comes out. But it's that. Well, that plays into the boys' nature of like they all join together to sing a song. This is you know sort of 
I mean, Serenator isn't this film quintessentially just a more dire summer camp film? Like, <laughs> really? Like, Boy Falls in Love with a Girl. If this is at a summer camp, it's totally fine. But <laughs> Well, I, look, I'll say this as well, because I actually wrote this down in my notes that even though it's such a paint-by-numbers romance and that her character, you know, even though she has authority, like her status, she's very quickly falls for, for yeah. Tom Cruise. Quickly, and sort of, quickly disarmed. Quickly disarmed, just sure. just a love interest. There's a, there's a lot to be said about that, and you can call it a trope. But I will say that their chemistry on screen was quite palpable, and I actually I really bought the uh, the you know the sexual tension. I generally enjoyed it, and I felt like it was saying more than it felt like it was saying. Yeah. And that might go into the again like the gay readings on this film, and to quote the Tarantino rant, and again this is him playing a character doing the rant, but I'm sure Tarantino probably believes in this as well is the idea that um, Val Kilmer and all the men, they represent homosexuality and she represents heterosexuality. And we see Tom Cruise's character sort of bouncing between the two of them, trying to make the decision. She wants him to go the right, quote-unquote, normal way about things. I, I, I mean, it's that, interesting that, that, read. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely an interesting read. I think it's one of those things where it's like you... I think people forget the scenes like when they have that sit-down at the house when he first goes over to the house and he's right. talking about his dad. And it's in like a tea garden scene, <laughs> and it's a very fem- a feminine scene, quite a deep and emotional thing. The reality is, it's like it's just a military based relationship, really. Right. It's they both are in this industry where they understand, like, it's not wrong for her to fall for someone in the army mm. or in the navy because she works in the navy or the army. It's just a workplace relationship. Really. Yeah. Well, I think they actually changed the position that she's more of a contractor. I mean, that she did change it with that in mind. They wanted to be a little less, uh, like, strange, I guess, or, yeah, yeah It's around the bush, though. Um, sure, sure. And, and look, they have the very classic 80s non-sex scene. <laughs> weirdest kissing ever. <laughs> really cool backlighting. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's a silly, fun movie. So it's mm. like... Do you really reckon that romance is going to be thought-provoking? And then it's one of those things, like, it's a product of the time. like Right. And to say, this is, like I said, this is one of those few films out there, and it isn't a lot, especially in, in that sort of 70s, 80s bracket and anything earlier, where it's more male scopophilic than it is female scopophilic. Yeah, well, I think that's what a lot of those jokes come from. <laughs> like, you, you, like, there's... Like, she is rarely in this film, if any time, sexualized to, like, overly sexualized. Like, there's a lot of locker room talk about women, but sure. it's very, it's it's like boys talking. It's like teenage boys talking about it. It's not educated or anything. And I think it's, if anything, it's, yeah, it's over, like, it's a lot of half-naked men, isn't it, running around? <laughs> um, Who doesn't like a lot of half-naked men? I'm getting sold more and more on Tarantino's rant here. Uh. <laughs> no, it, it's funny. It's interesting. And I think one of the writers I would check, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Simpson. I think it was uh, Bruckenheimer who actually came out and said like, hey, well, I, I didn't make the film with this viewpoint in mind, but he is very open to those views because that's what film is at the end of the day. Yeah. So you bring your own interpretations. Of it. And while I didn't go to that extent of my interpretation of like, literally people representing heterosexual heterosexuality and homosexuality, I did point out very quickly and was constantly reinforced throughout this film that this is a very boys clubby film. 
it just is, you know, with all the visuals and everything. And the fact she even says, like, you know, I don't date my students. It's like that student-teacher relationship that was kind of mm. there is literally through dialogue being reinforced. And, and um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. I want to talk a little bit more about the, I guess, the cinematography. We talked about sort of the action cinematography and the way they shoot the planes. And like I said, they had to use super 35 mil. Um, as opposed to, I guess, like the bigger 35 mils because they would literally mm. fall off the planes or they wouldn't fit in the cockpits. But I loved all that stuff. I haven't looked at much of, of obviously, the new Top Gun, which comes out very, very soon. I've seen, like, screen grabs of it, and it looks yeah. very, like, yeah, they're up there doing this for real. And like I said, there's a sense of it being real here because just how much the lighting changes from shot to shot. It's fantastic. That's brilliant. The orange hues and, like, that, that grating is yeah. just so cool. Well, the opening sequence, I loved it because it's all silhouetted and it's, again, it's not about the process of them getting these jets ready for takeoff. Mm. It's about how cool and slick and sexy it all is. I mean, it's complemented by the ultimate song, right? (laughs) (laughs) This film does have a fetish for Katie Longan's Danger Zone, which apparently he was not the, he was not the, obviously at this point had done Footloose, which is another like quintessential 80s song. Um and was not the first choice. Apparently, Toto was the first. So, <laughs> blessing those rains down from Africa. I know. Um, but it's it, it's a really cool song. That, and yeah. I think people obviously you know get caught up with the song and the look and the coolness of it. But it's it really is like that opening gets you in the mood for the movie you're about to consume. Yeah, like, of course. And I think that that's. It's I I put this in the same category, although I do think it's a little bit the story's a little tighter and a little bit more interesting. But it's very similar to Catherine Bigelow's Point Break, okay, ninety two film. I think the story is a little neater and it's a lot more a little bit more fun, and I sure, enjoy that yeah. film probably a lot more. But they're guilty pleasure films. They're these mm. fun like cool and that one that one's very yeah dude culture in that film but it's you know directed by a female and it's right. got like that probably that little bit more of that sensitive side well, she's to particularly it. good at that with the military she's stuff so good and, with it yeah uh, full props to Catherine bigelow with the way she goes about it but i think tony scott's done a very similar thing here just maybe a little bit more a little bit more hyper masculine yeah. a little bit more intense there, there were literally lines of them when they're watching the dog fights like oh this gives me a hard on don't tease me like <laughs> they just <laughs> They're, they're boys. Not, they're not shying away from it at all. And I appreciate that very much. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the thing. There's that such a degree of immaturity. Like, even... And it's it's peppered through the first half of the film. Like, Maverick, when he gets rejected by um, Charlotte. And yeah. he kind of sulks. Like, like cause Yeah, he, he generally is, like, upset about it. <laughs> like, he's not like, oh, I'm just going to go hit on another woman. Like... Because look at me, I'm this big hot shot. Or yeah. he doesn't even have like a moment of like retrospective think about what he said. No, he goes straight to sulking. Mm. Like, oh, give me another drink. Like, because <laughs> he's not, he doesn't like getting told no. Uh, and he always he's, has he's like confident in many other areas. One but... thing I really like about <laughs> early Tom Cruise, like this mid 80s to early 90s push, is he plays a really good, immature, kind of jackass character. I wonder why. <laughs> Like, really well. Like, The Color of Money, I think, was the same year, which was the Scorsese right. with Paul Newman and, and, and Tom Cruise I talked about oh, maybe less than a year ago. Fantastic film. Really underrated mm. Scorsese film. But he plays a really good pool shark. 
right. who's immature and incapable of dealing with emotions. And I mean, come on, like Paul Newman's in it, so it's like awesome. <laughs> but the movies aren't too dissimilar in their messaging um, about him, like that, like the characters he's playing, and he plays them really good all the way up until like Jerry Maguire, like right, yeah, which is in '95. Still gonna watch Jerry Maguire, like you know Jerry Maguire or Rain Man. Like I'm not the biggest fan of either of those films, but he plays those roles really well. Sure, so. yeah. And it's hard to detract because he got that this little smarmy, punchable face. So, um, and he has to wear them big boots, and so he, he is looks taller than obnoxiously <laughs> really good at things. He's that kind of person that plays that character really well. That he's really naturally good at things. Yeah, but is a bit of a tool about it. So, um, full is, credit. It, is it confidence or cockiness? It could be one or the other. That's it. <laughs> Meets both. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I just have one question for you, Zeke. Sure. The 80s synth soundtrack. Better here than in Gallipoli? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that not the one thing that takes so. away from, like, a near masterpiece in Gallipoli? Right. That weird synth. It sticks out quite a lot. <laughs> it hurts. I wish I wish Peter Weir... I know you haven't made a film in nearly 10 years, but I wish you'd just go back. Just take it out. <laughs> just go back and take it out. <laughs> Like, uh, I'm thinking of the last shot of Gallipoli with the synth track, which I know they don't play it during the end. I just but... love when they accomplish stuff and they have that real cheesy, like the. Like, it's like they're like, oh, it's so good. <laughs> it definitely works better in Top Gun because you're right. It feels more quintessential the 80s. Gallipoli's a period piece. So yeah, it feels just... really out of place in Gallipoli. I guess it's yeah. sort of, but he kind of does the synthy stuff in Picnic of Hanging Rock too, doesn't he? Yeah, it's definitely not as like distracting. Yeah. Uh... The Penny Hanging Rock, that was a 70s film as well. Yeah, true. But yeah, true. I, I think it works for Top Gun because you're right, it's the style. It fits yeah. the style a little better. To be honest, and it's like I've come to love this kind of cinema because it's like, you know, I've come on the show and bragged about how good Cobra Kai is and it's basically just the <laughs> 21st century porting over the 80s. You know, we talk about how strange, like Stranger Things encapsulates the 80s, but it doesn't encapsulate the 80s movie vibe, I think. It's like... Sure. It's just a a piece, a period piece. It's an 80s period piece, whereas Cobra Kai is a contemporary piece that encapsulates the cheesy 80s cinema. Mm. That it's Karate Kid, like, spiritual uh, ancestors had. And it's just so much fun. Like, it's so low. And I guess, like, the other reading that comes out of this film is it's super nationalism, pro-military. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it sort of is, but... I, I mean, I don't watch this and want to join the army. I see. I I don't know if it's see. I'm a bit torn on that specific example because, like, when I it's about again, like, it's so much. Like, look how cool this all is, and there's that element of danger. But as opposed to you're right, like, um, Heavy Metal Jacko, where it's you watch that and you're like very much like, oh, I know where this stands. True, is. but then you can't win, can you? Because you either you have to you basically can only criticize things or. In, like only yeah. talk about their negatives and not their positives and it's like well some people really like being in the military they like that lifestyle yeah exactly I don't think it's inherently bad to to like to be pro-military necessarily I think it's fine in this film because it is a bit more playful and and fun it's not trying to be too much of a commentary yeah, I don't think the, d- the cons- danger and the death and, and the risk and that, that's all just like a narrative thing for you to care about the characters they're not trying to necessarily be anti-military, and like, like I said, I think it is pro-military in that sense. 
but I don't think that makes it inherently a bad film or a bad message. It would be interesting to see what the 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 response at the time was, whether it was sure, yeah, like this this a film like this yielded or the positive exposure this film had yielded more conscriptions into the universe uh, into the into the military. Right. It would be very interesting to consider that. Have you had time, Zeke, to think about what I said earlier with the ending of Top Gun almost having an identical ending to the film we're doing next week on the show? Yeah, I, I think I with know. The, with mean. the crowds you... running yeah. to the aircraft and our hero climbs out and celebrated and <laughs> the audience has about five minutes, ten minutes to yeah. figure out what I'm talking about here. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> well, Jake... Yes. What was your highlight scene? Um, like I said, I said it before, and I didn't know what it was until you mentioned it, but the scene where Val Kilmer has to sort of give his condolences to Maverick about mm. Goose, I his performance in it, it really stood out to me as like, wow, that's cool. Like it's you said, pulling teeth and, and trying to get the words out before he gets punched in the face and being very careful about how he does it, but knowing that he needs to do it, yeah. despite the fact that they're essentially enemies. And they have the payoff at the end where they do hug it out and there's still that sense, that hint of cockiness where it's like, you'll be my co-pilot. You're, no, you'll be my co-pilot. Um, not co-pilot, but... But there's an acceptance they're on the same team. Exactly. Is, is what yeah, the yeah. There's, a, there's a common enemy, so to speak, and that yeah. they're on the same side. They look out for each other at the end mm. when it all matters. But Much like the film next week. <laughs> there you go. More and more teasing. But Zeke, uh, what about your highlight scene? Yeah, it's a really good scene. Um... I'd have to say I actually do like the um, the cougar sort of rescue sequence. Oh, like at the start. Uh, yeah, it's, it yeah. kind of finishes off the, the the first act. Like it's towards the back end of the first act um, where obviously Maverick and Goose, you know, rescue. And there's that, there is that level of seriousness that comes in that scene, but also the line of immaturity, the fact that they do the barrel roll on top of them and they flip them off. Right, the inverted, uh, the inverted. T- take a Polaroid of it. Yeah. It, it, I wish we saw that Polaroid. I reckon we're going to see it in Maverick in the sequel. I reckon we're going to see that Polaroid in the little yeah. callback, so to speak. Um, I think it, it perfectly encapsulates the chemistry between Goose and and uh, Maverick, which we didn't talk about. Very good. Um, oh, chemistry. they're great Matt, friends. They're so good together. Yeah, like They work really well with each other. Um but it was really good, like using the wing and sort of moving a great com. Like it was great stakes, mm. and we really sort of encapsulate the the fear and the danger. We forget how f- we almost because you know we see them moving fast all the time. We forget how fast these uh, instruments of war are yeah. moving. Well, how how easy it is to just stuff up. How dangerous yeah. it is, and I think, and what's so clever as well is having it at the start of the film. Again, you the way you know the way Tony Scott's shooting it, the way it's lit, and the the performances. Everyone's having so much fun. We're flying around, you know. We're just having to go all the time, messing around, flying with the boys. To have that panic attack come in so early, and for us to never really, by the end of the film, you you can kind of guess like, okay, well, you understand where the panic. Is. It kind of just like hits you at one moment. And I think he says that. I think I think um, Tom Cruise even says, as soon as you think about it, you're screwed. Um, and th- this idea that you almost have to be in the moment, and if you stop to think about it, it becomes terrifying that you're there in the air running at that speed in those conditions. And I think it's cool they plan it early in the film where you as an audience don't really get why he's having that panic attack until 
until it all unfolds, I guess. Yeah, no worries. Well, Top Gun is currently out on Stan. Yeah, it's on Stan. It's on Binge. I watched it on my Blu-ray version that I've had forever. I watched it on my DVD version. Nice. There, my... There you go. It's very good. Speaking <laughs> of streaming platforms and cinemas, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas? God, it is a dry, dry week, Zeke. Yeah, big um, week, I think, next week. I, in, in some cases, I literally there were literally nothing to report from like Paramount Plus or Prime. I don't think there was anything coming at all. Um, you have Stranger Things 4, Volume 1. We mentioned it earlier. So I think that's like the first half of Season 4, which I'll say this, would have made more sense if this was the last season, but I don't think it is the last season. So, a one. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of excited. Are you gonna watch it at all? Are you gonna yeah, rewatch? I'm gonna watch first three. Like, yeah, yeah. I liked the third. I actually thought the third one was, I think, my favorite because it was a bit dorkier and didn't okay. take itself as seriously. Like the Russian basement and under the ice yeah. cream. Store. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. Um, I'm glad yeah. they killed that Billy character off. It was a terrible character. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna I don't put know, that it's a there. weird one because it's been so long since I watched it that I'm almost forgetting yeah. that I'm like... It's been three what's... years, Zeke. Since and I think was... a lot's changed in three years. Like, I think even my tastes... I mean, your tastes are always constantly changing, but... Sure. Would I... If I go back and watch season one, two, and three, would I actually enjoy Stranger Things? Because I was... I, I do remember Stranger Things was sort of the first big streaming show. That was the thing. It was gigantic. But it, it was like out, the yeah. reason it was big was almost because it was this first ever original property that's come out of one of these streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. Like, it was in that Bojack Hill, but it was a live action one. And it, it was well, it was the, just the, 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 you know, they hit on those those horror elements of the 80s, the Spielbergian feel of it with the kids. And it just, it felt like a perfect cauldron mix of those, you know, yeah. aesthetics and, and stylistic things from the 80s and, and the horror elements, you know, Poltergeist as well and, and E.T. and put it all in a big barrel and it just worked. People just loved it. Or it's going to be tough now because so many of those kids are not kids anymore. No, they're looking very old. So I'm starting to like... Well, I shouldn't say looking very old, but they, they're adults now. They're adults, yeah. so... They're adults. And it's like, that's sort of the problem. Um, Will still has a terrible haircut. <laughs> I, have, I haven't seen any trailers. I saw like screen grabs of it. And okay. I was like, Jesus Christ, he looks so silly. <laughs> like they're desperately trying to make them look young. <laughs> yeah. I we'll know, see how we go. Just let him grow up, man. Just let him grow up. So that that's this week, which that kind of... Uh, I shouldn't say that snuck up on us. People have been waiting for that for a long time. Here's a clue number two, Zeke, mm-hmm. for what's coming next week. We get the first two episodes this week of the Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi series coming to Disney+. Plus. So, I I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to watch this or not. I am. I mean, I've watched, yeah. I watched all of Boba Fett. Like, I'm going to watch any Star Wars. Oh, okay, okay. Out. You've seen Boba Fett. I did. That kind of changes it, yeah. I'm... I love Star Wars. Um, I don't... I'm not understanding the constant having to revisit the main storyline from different perspectives or different... Like, this show doesn't really need to exist, in my opinion. Sure. Everything you need is in the films. But then I say that, but then Clone Wars is probably my favourite thing that's come out of Star Wars, and that was in a peri- one of these period slots. But I like what... I think... I liked that in Clone Wars because it was the ten. It was a very pivotal ten years yeah. that they focused on. Whereas, like, they're focusing on this 
period between three and four, obviously, mm. with Obi-Wan. And I guess there's a little bit there you can deal with the trauma of Mustafar, which is kind of a cool thing to visit, sure. I guess. And Ewan McGregor is like probably the best part of the original trilogy. Or the prequel trilogy. The prequel trilogy. Jesus, yeah. Um, and obviously the Hayden Christensen back and forth. So it's probably going to be a really good show. I just like what they've done with Mandalorian. Like, I like that right. they've gone and visited this. They've created... They, they've taken, obviously, expanded universe content and they've just pushed it into the narrative. And I like that we're mm. pushing further and further away from this Jedi-Sith narrative. It's still sure. there. Obviously, it is still there. And obviously, Mandalorian is now this... Was this platform, especially season two, for all these different shows that now we're going to go explore? Yeah, but, yeah. Oh, I can't wait until it's just like we're just going to go do an obscure one over in the back corner, and it's just set in Star Wars, but it has nothing to do with the main storyline. Yeah, I don't know. It just they can't help themselves. They just can't. They just literally can't help anything themselves. to make more money, which means it needs to be tied in with the main properties. Yep. We need hate. We need Darth Vader and in it. The problem is they do Frankenstein <laughs> things. Like they do. Like look at the, the Harry Potter films. They had to like Frankenstein somehow magical beasts into the crimes of, and apparently they should be two. I'm not big on Harry Potter, but apparently guess, they yeah. should have been two separate things. Well, as far as I rec- I don't quote me on this, but the whole like Fantastic Beasts where to find them, that was just like a like a like Final a fake book. biology book. Yeah. That wasn't. I don't think there was a narrative. I'm yeah. pretty sure it wasn't. But they've tried to hodgepodge it into the like a basically a Harry Potter prequel yeah, series. That, exactly, it was a spin-off that they then turned into a prequel, that is now just not, not cutting it. It's mm. not doing well at the box office. The 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 second one was terrible. I've heard the third one's not as bad, but like you have Harry Potter, like why would you? Yeah, no. So I'm I'm with you there on that. That whole I think train. And, uh, like in my personal opinion, nothing wrong with it doing a prequel Harry Potter thing. You've got this really in-depth world. You could start to justify Voldemort's existence, I guess. Like, right? Maybe I don't know. I don't know that much. I, there's, if, there's surely something. There's enough of that in the in the later films, like Voldemort's like his childhood and how he can, especially in the books, but. Yeah, I look. I think the whole like Dumbledore, Grindelwald, like I think that that's all fine for a prequel. That was all like a lot of it was teased in the last film. Yeah, but I mean the Hobbits, the, the, the Hobbits' existence made sense to me. Three films didn't make sense to me. No, no, no. It like, should just been the straight adaptation because it's like oh well, Bilbo. We Bilbo doesn't really talk about his adventure that he's writing about. So yeah, we can go but, and explore that. But I think you nail it on the head. It's like like I said. I think the Dumbledore backstory that that makes sense and tied that into Hogwarts but they started it on a foundation of here are some characters chasing down Fantastic Beasts and they're just trying so hard to wedge these things that barely go together the yeah. narrative was just boring I just yeah I, they really sh- they really shit the bed and yeah. it's, it's they'll f- they, I don't know if they are too far in to fix it well they're definitely too far in to fix it I don't know if they're too far in to actually just call it quits to just stop yeah. making those movies, but it's hard to say. I don't Star know. Wars has done itself a favor by moving away from the movies and doing these shows. They're like it's benefited from the serialized yeah. format. It was very quickly falling apart for them. Yeah, we, the only Star Wars movie we've done on this podcast is <laughs> the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I actually pretend those three films don't exist. I just in my head, oh, I can. Enough. I've I've done that thing from that movie. They take the memories out. Um, I eternal sunshined myself. Oh, okay. I thought you were Men in Black, but <laughs> or I could have Men in Black myself. Yeah. yeah. Well, fair we should enough. Should do that on the show someday. That's a fun movie. Oh, we should. We should. 
That that that, that I could see that being an eighties film. I'm surprised it wasn't made earlier. Yeah, ninety seven. Yeah. Oh, there you go. The year we were born. There you go. Look, um, look at that. What else have we got? So coming to cinemas this week, we've got Top Gun Maverick. Look at that. <laughs> it's crazy. Perfect. How did that happen? I know. I, I like that the and it's gonna bleed into next week too. With, it really is. With the stream what came out this week. <laughs> What's this onto onto it, Zeke? I love it. Where so, our audience is onto it. That is true. They're making a lot of the picks for us. So, you know. But we I feel like we have some involvement in it. Yeah. We included those films. Yeah. The audience has picked them. Out of the choices that we gave them. I'm gonna give the audience credit for these ten weeks. Okay, fine. They can have we it. We get forty two weeks a year. Uh, so Top Gun Maverick takes place about thirty years uh later. Thirty years of service as Pete Maverick Mitchell pushes the envelope. As a courageous test pilot and dodging the advancement in rank that would ground him. I actually don't mind. I think I read that wrong. I don't mind that logline. Is it is it a metaphor, metaphorical grounding? Or is it literally it a promotion today? It's <laughs> <laughs> free. There you go. This was interesting. The Bob's Burgers movie, which sees the bleachers try to save the bleachers? Bel- the Belchers. Belchers. I've never seen the show. I'm sorry. Uh, try to save the restaurant from closing as a sinkhole forms in front of it. Will this be as epic as the Simpsons movie? Oh, it'd be fun. The Simpsons movie is way... I love John Benjamin's voice. Yeah. <laughs> Him as Archer is just so good. I couldn't get into Bob's Burgers. I watched the first three or four episodes and I was like, yeah. I've but then it could be a, it could yeah. be a Bojack thing. I had to push through, I think, the first, what, six or seven before I was like sure. on board. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I knew it was like they it's owned a restaurant, weird. so that, that makes sense to me, that reading, the sinkhole. Yeah, there are Ar- Archer crossover episodes oh, okay. when Archer has insomnia and he thinks he's Bob from Bob's Burgers. <laughs> and it literally really starts good. with him flipping Burgers. Like, they've they've done the complete Archer animation, but it's Bob's Burgers. That's it's brilliant. It's the Archer style. Yeah. It's so... Because obviously both are voiced by John Benjamin. Yeah, okay. Okay. So That all, that all checks out now. Yeah. It's fantastic. So that's coming to Hoyts. It's playing on the big screen. I think this is actually the first time this has happened since... Oh, I guess Spongebob, they have their theatrical released. Or that live-action one that came out a few yeah. Oh, well, yeah, the one we Yeah, Keanu's in it. And then... You're right, it is part live-action, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God. What's going on over there? <laughs> now, if you want to go over to Luna this week, you have the Broadway musical recording of An American in Paris, a screening of the famously bad Nick Cage version of The Wicker Man, and finally... This uh, the, is that the bees? Yeah. Ah, the bees! Ah! Ah! <laughs> we should watch that. It's Luna. Oh, That'd be excellent. I wouldn't mind doing that. To uh, and finally, I've seen the trailer for this. It looks this looks cool. A blaze, which sees uh, Tariki Onus uncover the history of his grandfather, an Aboriginal leader and civil rights activist, who may also be the first Indigenous filmmaker, Bill Onus. Trailer looks cool for this. That sounds cool. It looks really cool. So that's playing. That's all playing at Luna. But other than that, that's it for the week, Zeke. No worries. Very well, exciting. it's time to move into one of the golden decades of cinema on our mm. countdown through the decades retrospective, the nineteen seventies. Jake, we had two, two kind of heavyweights going up against each other. We I'd did, say. yeah, yeah. Um, and and this was probably one of the closest polls we've done. We've had some. Oh, that's not true. We've had some tight races. Yeah, some one voters. Yeah, one voters. This wasn't quite a one voter. Um, so, of course, the films... Well, I'll say the one that lost. It was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's very sad. Which was my vote. It lost 21 to 17. So, it was only four votes. Yeah. It's pretty close. It, I reckon it'll get it next year. 
Yeah, yeah, potentially. I still, I've never seen it before. I've never seen oh the Monty Python God. films. I know. Now I feel bad. I really wish we had done that. <laughs> I've definitely seen the film we are going to do this week. <laughs> but Jake, what are we watching? Well, unless you haven't guessed it by now, audience, we are covering Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. <laughs> 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American Graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. Coming in too fast! The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. I am C-3PO, human-cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Hello. It's an epic of heroes. and aliens from a thousand worlds. Star Wars, a billion years in the making. And it's coming to your galaxy this summer. When Princess Leia is abducted by the insidious Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker teams up with two droids, a pilot, and a Jedi Knight to save not only her, but the galaxy from an evil galactic empire. You forgot about Chewbacca. Just like episode oh. nine, for <laughs> only you... only the ones who get badges are included, <laughs> <laughs> including Darth Vader. Well, he gets one in episode nine. Remember that movie that doesn't exist? Oh yeah, exactly. It's the only other one we've covered. Okay, I t- I've teased this Star Wars thing so much this week. Like, come on, the ending to to Top Gun. Or I guess this. To be fair, it is the, the second to last scene, but it is also the second to last scene in Star Wars. Yeah, that is identical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But to be fair, it's Star Wars came first, so pick up again. Yes, Top yes, Gun. that is true. As evidence as we're doing it after Top Gun, yeah. because we're going back in time. Yeah, further and further. To be fair, we're actually going to do something a bit different with this one because obviously mm. there are many cuts of a new. Yes, home. yes. I'm glad you mentioned this. Um, we're going for the most authentic 1977 cut we can achieve in the modern day. Yes, so I believe it is called the despecialized version. So, audience, look it up. If you want to watch the cut that we're... I guess we're both going to watch this cut, mm-hmm. um, which is a a purposeful recreation of Star Wars in, in a high definition. I think I think the file they have for downloads like 16, 17 gigabytes. Yeah. It's massive. It, it's 720p, but it's a massive file. I guess the bit rates through the charts. But the idea is that it is the most faithful recreation of the theatrical 1977 film. Mm-hmm. So none of the George Lucas cuts. The opening crawl does not have episode four. In fact, Zeke, should we even just call this Cinema Sideshow 176 Star Wars? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is the 
Star Wars is yeah. The so we're gonna Star do Wars. that one. So because yep. um, obviously we've talked about obviously this you know when we, this time last year we talked about the original Blade Runner and the yes and the many many cuts of there yeah, yeah yeah of that and obviously Lucas has done the exact same with multiple of the Star Wars films. Grr. So <laughs> I feel like voice. this is the golden opportunity to critically analyze just Star Wars as Star Wars, which Ooh, like is very great considering this is part of a countdown through the decades retrospective mm. to get the most authentic version of this film I like that, that we can achieve in 2023. Two. We're in 2022. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're still studying, Zeke. Um, <laughs> I know you want out, but... <laughs> yeah. I do have a VHS down there of the original Star Wars, but I don't think... That has Episode Four A New Hope in the crawl. Yeah, I have so a it's v. not the oldest version. But it's close. Yeah. I think the oldest version I ever owned was like a 96 or a 97. Right. I've never seen this 77 or this most authentic version. Yeah. I think there are laser discs back when that was a thing of the original 77 cut. But if, if the audience, if you look it up and Zig, you should watch it too because I think they have a video like explaining the despecialized version. She watched that as well, and um, very cool. It really highlights what the differences are between all the cuts. But I'm excited, very excited to cover Star Wars next week. Um, as well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Star Wars. Da 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 da